Before we get going, just a quick heads up that there's a couple of swear words in this episode, so if you have young listeners around, turn it down or listen later. What are you doing? <coughs> I can't even say the words, it's so gross. <laughs> what are you doing? Tell me. Yeah, there's stuff on, there's poo on the ground. Oh, oh no. Oh my gosh. I can't get it all out. Saxon. Oh, no, 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 no. I just put that in there. Oh, gosh, it's day one and the toilet's blocked. My name's Laurie Uden and you're listening to From Afar, a five-part memoir and storytelling podcast about living and loving long distance. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, press pause and go back. You'll meet my husband, Sean, and our two kids, Matilda and Saxon. Right now, the kids and I are separated from Sean by over 7,000 kilometres of desert, ocean and ice. And I'm on a quest to find out how to live my best life while he's away. The kids and I are in Darwin, Australia's tropical north, and our much-loved home. It's the wet season and it's a perler with more rain than we've had in years. Sean's on his way to one of the most physically demanding, isolated and extraordinary places on Earth, Antarctica. Well, it's Wednesday and we've finally thrown the ropes. The uh, Everest is now departing Hobart on its way down the Derwent River. Um, I'm out on deck, the sun's just going down, it's twilight. Uh, There's been obviously this massive build up to the departure. It's been a roller coaster, but it just really feels good to actually throw the ropes off the ship and head to sea. Meanwhile, back in Darwin, it's day one and the shit has hit the fan. Literally. Saxon has taken it upon himself to be the one to fix the toilet. So he's just got a pair of tongs from the kitchen cupboard that we will now throw in the bin. Oh, he's just, he's looking very pale and he's just walked out dry reaching. (laughs) Oh, uh, did you unblock the toilet, mate? I think so. Oh, I'm proud of you. It still be a bit blocked, but... Is it still blocked? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I think it is still blocked. Oh. Day one. Fun. I'm out on the bow of the ship. I'm just trying to capture some southern ocean weather I'm hiding behind some superstructure to try and break the wind I've got the big hairy windsock on it's blowing about 30 knots maybe gusting to 40 Um, and we've got about 4 to 5 metre swells coming from the west and we're running about 
on a sail west direction. That was a couple of weeks ago now. That's how long it takes, 14 days, for the ship, the Everest, to cross the Southern Ocean from Hobart to reach Davis Station on the coldest, driest, most remote continent on Earth. Actually, the biggest desert in the world, but it's freezing cold. It's only considered a desert because um, there isn't much rain, I don't think, and I don't know how much rain they have or if they have any. While Sean's relishing the elements in the Southern Ocean, I've been doing normal, everyday things in Darwin, like working, trying to find time to walk the dogs, parenting our two kids without losing my shit, and facing off with a top-end monsoon. <laughs> oh, absolutely drenched. Oh, goodness. Oh, I think all my shopping's drenched too. Oh, and there's a river of water in the car park, so... My shoes are absolutely soaked through, and so am I. The kids and I haven't seen Sean for about six weeks now. So it's absolutely bucketing down here. It's about five in the morning in Darwin wet season, and the power's out, so... um, yeah, I've been just waiting for the power to go on. I'm thinking about the generator that's in the shed uh, that I would normally say, uh, Sean, go, can you go and get the generator and plug it in? And it, um, voila, you have power back on. Anyway, I might leave it for a little while, maybe um, until a decent hour, and then I'll... Go and see if I can work this generator. Sean's already ploughed through the big seas in the Southern Ocean and is now in the calmer waters that surround the Antarctic continent. You know, the waters that are dotted with icebergs and frolicking penguins. He'll soon arrive at Davis Station, where he'll be working as a watercraft operator for the Australian Antarctic Division, or AAD. He'll be ferrying people and supplies through some of the iciest waters in the world. But until they get there, he's essentially a passenger, which means he's got lots of time to make recordings for me, for this podcast. Everyone's um, getting around the ship pretty buoyed up with getting very close to the destination and it pretty much helps to be going all the way through these icebergs while the sun's shining it's still ridiculously cold it's about three degrees and there's about 30 knots of breeze whipping around us so the wind chill factor is ridiculous you cannot come outside without covering up big time um your eyes water, your nose runs, but there's a um, real crisp feel in the air of clean air. And um, as I'm recording this, I'm watching this gigantic iceberg just slide down the side of the ship. Feel very, very privileged to be out here and witnessing that iceberg. 
Like, had I not seen that iceberg, no one on the planet would have got to see that. So I feel very lucky that I got to appreciate it. It's um, sort of haunting to tell you the truth. There's caves and that in it, and the sunshine hits it, and this it just reflects off with a sparkle and there's waves breaking around it and birds it's um very surreal and hard to describe the 22 people who've been wintering at davis station have been watching the horizon anxious to see the everest they ended up being down there five months longer than was originally planned due to COVID. So after 15 long months away, I can imagine they're really keen to see the arrival of their lift home. Morning, MPV Everest. VLZ Davis, over. Good morning, uh, MPV Everest calling. Um, our ETA to encourage position, 830, 8.30. Copy that, uh, ETA to Anchorage position, uh, 0830, over. Copy that. Uh, yesterday I had the full day on the water in amongst the elephant seals and the penguins and the ice who were um, driving the little barge in and out with containers of cargo and fuel um, and provisions for the winters that are going in. We also did PAX transfers, so all the people that are going in for the winter, they were super excited. And um, it was nice to share their excitement of sending them ashore. And you can see the elephant seals on the beach just down from the Davis station. And um, they're having little fights amongst themselves and the Adeli penguins wandering in and around the cargo operations. They're curious, so they're quite frequently walking up to the the dogger and the rigger who's working the crane and um, apparently the weather's going to turn in the next day or so so we're trying to get as much cargo done as we possibly can before the weather turns bad and then they're going to be looking really solidly for a refueling window so they'll need two to three days to put on over a a million litres of um, special Antarctic blend diesel to provide the station with generators and warmth and electricity. So that's a really important role of what we're doing down here. It's extreme, but sort of a rugged beauty. The continent itself almost looks like a quarry. It's just rock and snow and ice. Um, And when the sun actually pokes its head through, it's, it's stunning, but in an extreme sort of way. Back here in the tropics, I feel like the kids and I are doing pretty great on our own. After the summer holiday break and the big lead up to saying goodbye to Sean, we're back at school, work, sports and doing our best to make life fun and interesting without him. All right, watch out. Let's see if we can get into this coconut. Oh, Dad wouldn't know how to cut this. <laughs> I can do it. Oh, oh dear. It's really hard. Yeah, it's like wood. Anything in there? Well, it said it was a drinking coconut. Sure, it's not just an eating coconut. 
An 18 gun? Yeah. Oh. In, oh, yes. Yep, there it is. Whoa. Up. There we go. Yeah. See, I can do it just as good as that. <laughs> oh, look at that. Whoa. But it doesn't take much for cracks to widen to chasms. Sometimes I feel like I'm being swallowed whole, in frustration, in loneliness, and sometimes in panic over things I'd normally deal with fine. Why is this? I'm a functioning human, most of the time, living a privileged life. Many people choose to be sole parents, or live alone, or are missing someone or somewhere. Do they sink into a flood of tears over a sore thumb? Feeling a little um, upset and panicky right now. Evie, our 12-month-old border collie cross Kelpie, bolted out of the gate and over to the road and I tried to grab her and she's um, bent my thumb all the way back and um, really hurts. I've tried to jump on the computer but it hurts too much and I've got so much work to do. I think the panic I tend to fall into much more quickly than normal is because of a constant background hum of anxiety. The kids struggle at times too and although we feel really lucky and thankful to be able to talk to each other via WhatsApp It's often scratchy and drops out a lot. You there? What's that? It's the noise that means we can't connect. Can you hear us? Papa? No. I was enjoying talking to you. Ah. It's gone. I'm feeling like I miss him, but it's okay. Still feeling good? Yeah. I miss him, but... Like, last night I cried a bit, but I'm fine. He's... it's good. Good. I miss him too. Yeah. Hmm. I'd be better if Jack was back. Or still here. I know. But we're, I feel like we're going pretty good at the moment. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a bit overwhelming. I do about a million more jobs. Well, Mum's asking you to do more jobs because Dad's not here to help. Well, it's boring. <laughs> uh, well, I'm thankful that you're helping and doing more jobs. I'm so used to being able to rely on certainties, like dates in calendars but I'm quickly learning that certainties are irrelevant in Antarctica, where the weather rules. Sean's due back home at the end of March, but who knows when it will really be. Back in the summer of 2018, while Sean was on board the ship, the Aurora Australis, they got stuck. We finished our resupply of one of the stations and we were told that's it, we're heading for home. So the weather was absolutely stunning. It was really sunny and there was no wind and 
everyone was out on deck and really buoyed up by the fact they were heading for home and we'd had a successful resupply and everything had been done really well and so lots of people outside taking photos and they transited a place that was called or known as Iceberg Alley. Everything was going great and then they had a wind change and all the ice closed in around them and the ship was trying to transit through the ice and basically just come to a stop that couldn't go anywhere. The ship um, at different intervals through the day would fire up and try and steam out of the ice but it was very clear and evident that it wasn't going anywhere. Three days had disappeared while we drifted around on the ice going past some of these massive icebergs and it felt like wow we're really close to those I don't know what would happen if they got pushed into an iceberg I don't think I'd like to find out So why do people choose to put themselves in danger to work in faraway lands or live in places hundreds of kilometres from the nearest town? More often than not they take risks that the rest of us living in bigger towns and cities wouldn't even contemplate. Hey Mum, if you fall in the water in Antarctica, you only have up to three minutes to get out before you die from the cold. I'd heard something like that before, and it makes my heart stop still. Is it really only three minutes? I decide to contact the AAD to find out, and according to their polar medicine unit, you've probably got a bit longer than that. They say you've got one minute while your body has a cold shock response, ten minutes while you're trying to swim and keep yourself afloat, and up to about an hour before hypothermia sets in, depending on a lot of different variables, of course. And while it's great to be informed, to be honest, even with all that info, it doesn't make the fear go away, and my brain keeps going around and around. What if Sean does fall overboard? What if he can't get back into the boat? What if all that insulated clothing drags him down? What if he dies down there and I get that phone call that nobody wants to get? There's only so many what-ifs one brain can handle. But I do want to understand why people choose to leave their families and put themselves in potentially dangerous situations. So I ask my mates Rhiannon and Tamara how they deal with it. You heard from them back in episode one. Rhiannon is a remote area nurse, specialising in cardiology, and Tamara has been working for Australian Border Force for 15 years. I used to work in Central Australia, so they were week-long trips, which, you know, isn't too bad, but... um, these days I just do one night away at a time. Yeah, nice. And what sort of places do you go to? I'm very lucky because I get to go to the best places. Tiwi Islands, Groot Island, Gove, all of East Arnhem, which is amazing. Catherine, Wadair, you know, really, really good places that, you know, people just don't get the chance to go to very often. I work in Darwin most of the time, but we travel remotely, fortnightly, monthly basis. Sorry, Boston. Is barking away. <laughs> That's your dog? Yes. We thought we'd locked him up securely, but not the case. <laughs> That's all right. We can handle Boston in the background. Um, 
And you work in rheumatic heart disease a lot. Yeah, so rheumatic heart disease in the Territory or the whole of the top end of Australia is just horrific and for us it's really hard because these kids, predominantly young people who are, you know, really unwell, it just, it's destroying families, kids' lives and unfortunately there's nothing we can do about it but just try and keep the screening and doing more, I guess, and hoping that someone will listen and start funding more housing, education, all of those things. Mm, sad, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Border Force, we um, intercept or um, stop illegal trade or um, people coming abroad. How did you end up going for the job in the first place? Um, I ended up at Border Force because um, I actually had done 10 years in defence and then I got out and um, I'm very patriotic for Australia um, and wanted to do something that was meaningful. And so at the moment um, we're deployed just off the coast of Australia, which is hugging the PNG coast. Um, There's multiple islands in the Torres Strait that um, may be as big as 2Ks wide. And is it it hard living in a... A really, you know, small remote island out in the middle of, well, it's not in the middle of nowhere, but, you know. Um, It is hard and I think it's hard because, one, you're away from your family. Uh, You're not with living with people that you normally would want to share with. Uh, We live in share accommodation, so we are sharing maybe three or two in one room in bunk beds um, with one toilet that's in the shower. So you're hoping that people are quick in the showers and... Uh, they're clean and tidy. It's a very small building that we live in. Like it's a it's a donger, demountable building. Sounds pretty tough. And can you just tell me like how long you would normally be away for? So I'm normally away for a three week stints, but I'm only home for another three weeks after that before I get asked to go again. It's a, quite a lot, isn't it? It comes around very quick. <laughs> mm. What's your motivation? Like, why do you stay in this job? Um, that takes you away from your family? Uh, So this is firstly a choice of mine. I get asked if I wish to attend and deploy and I go because it gives me, it makes me feel good. I, I can see that I'm helping. I can see that I'm assisting in the community. I can see that I'm protecting Australia's borders from COVID. And I think for the first time I've actually felt that I've done a worthy job. Hmm. And I guess for you, it's sort of similar. Yeah, absolutely. You know, going, I think when you um, see people in their own environment and in their own, you know, on their own country, it's just totally different to what you get when you work with people in a hospital. The best part is helping people when they're at their worst or need the most help. And the worst? Oh, so there's always... The worst parts are the hardest, but it's, you know, when you can't do anything to help or save someone that you need to. Mm. And so if you're thinking about the missing each other and the, um, the longing and loneliness. Yeah, I think about the two, two and a half week, like when she's just about home, we usually argue and it's usually over nothing and... Like I'll go to bed and just be cranky and then in because every morning we'll ring on our way to school, she'll talk to the kids, Cody will do his reader. Um, but then we just sort of won't talk until later in the day. You know, like but it's just because we're both just over it. We're both tired 
and then we're fine again. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, the dynamics of the journey of the trip away? It's waves. It's definite waves. And, you know, uh, there's moments absolutely oh my god this is you know I love you so much and then the next day is just don't even message me (laughs) that's what I mean like it's not even that you're arguing for any particular reason it's just one of us is pissed off because something has happened like you're tired or you've gone through something really crappy the kids have given me grief or I'm tired or I'm trying to work or whatever or I didn't message enough because I've been doing something (laughs) or, or or I'll think that of you you know but realistically it's nothing major it's just just exhausting some days yep I feel your pain I really do understand the pain of the hard days the days when the kids are niggling each other and just won't let up the days you feel like shit and still have to do the millions of things that need doing because there's no one else there to do them. The days where you really want your husband by your side to go to a friend's birthday do, or the footy presentation night, or just to take the dogs for a walk on the beach together with another adult. My other adult. I mentioned this to Sean over a scratchy WhatsApp call a few days ago. He felt guilty for being away. Which wasn't my intention. Or was it? Maybe I want him to feel a little bit bad sometimes. Is that horrible? I told him about my chat with Tamara and Rhiannon, and we talked about the hardships, the risks, and the fears people have to face to live from afar. And also about the lengths some people go to, the hoops they have to jump through, to live in places like Outback Australia or Antarctica. Yeah, apparently the doctors, to come to Antarctica, have to get their appendix cut out to get the job. What? Really? No way. Yeah. I wonder if the doctor on the... Just about certain of it. I wonder if the doctor on the ship at the moment has had his cut out. I'm sure they have, but let me find out for you. Sean grabbed his recording gear and took off to the ship's medical rooms to find the doctor who will be wintering at Davis Station this year, Dr John Cherry. Yeah, there's a lot of myths around this, so I'll try and clear those up. So um, every Australian doctor who winters um, is required to have what's called a prophylactic laparoscopic appendicectomy. but it really stems from 19, in 1951, uh, an Australian doctor on uh, an expedition with the Australian Antarctic Division uh, developed appendicitis and had to be rescued at great expense and um, much embarrassment, I think, at the time. Uh, so since then, there's been a, um, a requirement for Australian doctors to have their appendix out because despite the one famous case of the Russian doctor who operated on himself with the assistance of people holding mirrors and probably a few shots of vodka, um, you know, it's probably not best practice to be doing that. So in general, all of the expeditions have had to have their appendix out. Well, when there have been expeditions to really remote places and during that 
um, the setup of Mawson Station. Uh, every expedition had to have their appendix out. And then there was a team who wintered on the Amory Ice Shelf in 1968, and all of those expeditioners had to have their appendix out because of the remoteness. Wow. But uh, for most people who are listening to this who might have an interest in coming to Antarctica with the Australian Antarctic Program, it's only the doctor who has to go through that process. <laughs> it's quite a sacrifice, I've got to say that. Imagine having part of your insides cut out for your job. Is that going above and beyond? Would you do it? And would you want to work in a place that takes two weeks to get to by sea and has very limited options for a quick flight out if something goes wrong? This is my first winter, which is a very different beast to coming down for a round trip or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, You know, we've got a nine-month window where there's no medical evacuation. Um, there's For the doctor, there's telemedicine support with um, uh, experts in Hobart and um, around Australia. Um, and we're supported locally by lay surgical assistants who are your plumbers and your sparkies and your diesel mechanics who we train to help us with an anaesthetic or a, a surgical procedure if we need it. Um, but this is this is pretty uh, pretty remote. In fact, it's probably the most remote you can get from a medical point of view. Um, and uh, the inability to get anyone out for a nine-month window uh, means there's a lot of uh, responsibility that the doctors carry into a, into a winter. Yeah, you must feel the weight of that for sure. And I'm sure the plumber probably does too, being your able assistant. What? So, in a medical emergency, the diesel mechanic becomes the anaesthetist and the plumber becomes a surgical nurse? No way. I had to look into this a bit further, and I did. I found a short video clip about lay surgical assistance on the Antarctic Division's website. As a lot of them are tradies or come from a scientific background, they very quickly realise that a lot of the equipment that we use here or the, just the way the body works is, is similar to a lot of um, you know, machines and plumbing that they might have come across already. They're really, really good, really easy to teach. They absorb a lot and they learn so much in such a short amount of time. You would have no usual business walking from a construction site into a hospital room and assisting with surgery. It's been incredibly uh, stimulating and rewarding. That was a very good learning experience, uh, real life type scenario. Um, And we covered a lot of points. Yeah, good, we saved his life. Now that's really cool. Although I'm not sure how I'd feel about the plumber being the assistant if I needed surgery in Antarctica. But this takes me back to my question. Why put yourself in these situations? Talking to Tamara and Rhiannon and listening to Dr John got me thinking that maybe there's a more profound reason. A thirst. Perhaps initially for adventure or a sense of dedication to a job, or simply the love of a place. But what about people who go to extraordinary lengths, face very real danger, or who choose to live or travel to these faraway places time and time again? I think these people are on a quest of their own, a quest for meaning, to matter, to make a difference, to leave behind a legacy. It takes a dedication of spirit or a dedication to something that is felt deeply. I wonder if my husband will want to travel to Antarctica year after year. Will these months of loving from afar become a regular part of our lives? 
If so, I wonder what his bigger picture motivation is. And am I happy to support it? Next time on From Afar. This intimate moment between partners. I got on the, the FaceTime with Dan and, and I basically said to him, what are you doing next week? Do you want to get married? And then when, um, you know, when you achieve those things and if there is nobody to celebrate, you just feel so incomplete. We still don't have any idea when he'll be leaving Antarctica to come home. a loved one, work or live remote? You can share your story with us through our website, fromafarpodcast.net. While you're there, check out our photo gallery of both icy and tropical beauty. From Afar was created and produced by me, Laurie Uden, with some help from my husband, Sean, who recorded the sounds and interviews in Antarctica. I couldn't have done it without Cinnamon Nippard, who produced and edited the podcast, and Hamish Robertson, who mixed it. Big thanks also to Johanna Bell for her invaluable mentoring and of course to our two kids, Matilda and Saxon, for allowing me to record their lives for more than just a few months. If you love the music, look up Darwin singer-songwriter and now music producer for podcasts, Serena Peck. Last but not least, thanks to all the people who participated in the podcast and to the Australian Antarctic Division and Maritime Construction Services for their support. In this episode, you heard from Tamara Travers and Rhiannon Townsend, along with Dr John Cherry from the Australian Antarctic Division. From Afar was created on beautiful Larrakia land and was produced with funding support from the Northern Territory Government through ArtsNT. 